G'day, my name's Adam Spencer and welcome to Billion Dollar Napkin, where we discover how some of Australia's brightest startups prove that their crazy, innovative and impactful ideas were possible. We'll be taken through their triumphs, failures and pivots and learn everything from their early beginnings to how they got it made. Technically, when we made the first sale, there wasn't actually a company. I think there was one point there where uh, we may not have eaten for 24 hours or we forgot to eat for 24 hours or we'd <laughs> run out of sleep. Anyone who's read the comment section on Facebook or Twitter will know online conversations can get very ugly very quickly. But what if there was an AI platform that allowed brands to have quality conversations with their customers, free from the nasty bots and trolls? In today's episode, I get my geek on and talk conversational AI with Seb and Dan from Patter. Seb. Dan, thank you so much for joining me for Billion Dollar Napkin. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Thanks now, for having us. Dan, I see Seb's already got the pen. He's the designated artist out of this duo. He is, yes. I have the uh, the artistic skills of, would you believe, a small puppy. Okay. So, Seb, show me the Billion Dollar Napkin for Patter. Absolutely. So, at the centre, when we're thinking about Patter, we're sitting at this intersection between organisations and uh, customers. And there are thousands of conversations happening uh, simultaneously at scale. And what we're essentially trying to do is we're trying to highlight the good and the bad from amongst those conversations. Okay, you sit in between the brand and the customers. You're looking at the conversations the customers might have. If Absolutely. some of those are nasty or negative conversations, what does what does Patter try and do? We're essentially trying to understand the language, the intent within the context of those conversations, and then identify who are good, who are bad, uh, and then make sure that we can enable that brand to highlight the good, find the find those super fans, those brand champions, but then also find those bad actors um, and stop them from influencing and making it an unsafe online environment. This all relies on conversational AI? It does. It does. And at its core, it's essentially just trying to understand what people are saying and allowing it's a computer understanding, you know, speech, text, what people are actually saying in conversation. Is it the similar sort of science when we're trying to get chatbots to be able to interpret what I'm saying to the chatbot and feedback and I have a conversation online with that that digital tool as opposed to a, a person? Yeah, sure. So the core element and the core crux is obviously semantic analysis. So we can use our AI modeling to detect profanity, racism, homophobia. We can look at images and detect kind of, you know, pornography or other not unsafe content and classify it in a way that works for a particular brand. So you may have brands, for example, a good one is, is sporting. We work with a lot of different sporting brands. Um, someone saying, you know, F yeah, what a fantastic goal would classify as profanity, but it's not. There's a really positive sentiment there. So the idea is we can actually take these, these kind of lenses into this data and build these very complex models and complex worlds that give us the ability to do really powerful things with this kind of information. Your example of F year being a celebration in sport, but F you being a profanity you want to keep out of social commentary is, is really interesting and it shows some of the nuance in conversational AI. And even though most of us deal with it in a different sense to patter of with chatbots and all that, mm. is, it, is it right to say across the whole field the, the levels of application vary. I know in my experiences with conversational AI, sometimes that is seamless and fantastic. Other times you're there going, no, I've already given you my password 15 yep. times, please. Is it is, is it a field that's still evolving rapidly and, 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 and scattered in its, in its effectiveness? Yeah, I, I would say so. And I think that that is a little bit of that comes down to and sort of what shows our success as well is that you take my background in sort of, design and user experience you take dan's background in sort of from an engineering perspective and we bring this sort of 
approach where it's more than just the technology we're looking at the user experience as well and everyone has that chatbot experience of you know saying the same thing over and over again and you're not getting what you need um you look at the application that you know some of the chatbots that we've rolled out in previous years with customers is where you know something negative is actually said uh we get the chatbot out of the conversation as quickly as possible and we put you into the hands of a, a person to actually answer your questions i think the, the the core element here is kind of understanding the context in which you're operating and i think that is kind of one of the things that helps us differentiate between some of the other the other players in this space like because even of- even when two humans are communicating online like the number of times on twitter you see conversations go dark very quickly and you're clearly going dude someone is just clearly missing the context or the nuance here so even if humans struggle to do it getting machines to do it must be a fascinating space yeah people i think one of the other things is people have a a long history of talking cross purposes and i think the the idea that a machine is going to necessarily you know excel at that particular case definitely is something that we've worked very hard on i think the for us as i said the the core thing is, is context so if we're talking again in a sporting context if we're talking in a gaming context if we're talking in terms of working with media properties like a, a good example is um defamation law changes in regards to the high court changes in australia relatively recently the bowler decision um have changed the kind of the risk profile of, of media companies Australia. Content that could be classified as defamatory or negative, a good example is uh, comments on uh, articles from newspapers that regard criminal proceedings. So a criminal trial or anything else like that, that's a definitely a source of, of kind of, you know, defamation or, or defamation risk. And so, so organisations like yours need to be keeping abreast of those changes in laws as well as changes in social mores. 100%. And the like. What In terms of the user experience, what's at the cutting edge of the challenge of getting that right at the moment? I think if you look at the broader problem that AI tries to solve. It works well when it's very narrow, very specific, and it's mm. focused on a specific problem. And where it starts to fall apart a bit is where you try and look at the, you try and be too broad. The The scope is too broad. You're trying to do too much with it. Um, and that is like the broader challenge that is, you know, is, is being solved well from our perspective. And it's sort of where it's starting to fall down in other areas as well. Let's go back a bit. Where did you two first meet? Face to face. I think we first met in LAX airport um, after getting off a after getting off a flight. I think it was the first the first time we you know met in person. It doesn't surprise me, uh, people from a digital startup, that you say the first time we met face to face. I presume you'd met online or had been working together before then for a while? Yeah, we'd worked together for probably about six or seven months. We were both working for a telco startup um, at the time. I was I was running the engineering for it and, and Seb was basically helping them with their go-to-market. What was that telco all about? Uh, that telco was really early days around uh, sort of revolutionising uh, phones within businesses, essentially, and I think that was a it was a little bit too early. Too early, yeah. A little bit too early. It's probably <laughs> about five, little five or six years too early for its time. Because from what I understand, there was we think you you worked at an organisation that dissolved, then sort of came back together. That was that telco startup. So it dissolved. Everyone went their separate ways. I think we had about about a year's sort of hiatus of no one speaking to each other, and then coincidentally, we all came back together, and. That was, you know, within a couple of months, we sort of had conceived of this idea that, that was patter. But those early days when this telco was before its time, yeah, these were the classic examples of really slumming at early days yeah. of a startup, yeah? 
yeah, yeah, we were in we were in San Francisco pitching for VC money, and um, obviously you got the place that you could afford. Uh, how long were we there for? Ten days or something? Ten days. Yeah. Ten days. Uh, I slept at the foot of Dan's bed for ten ten days on the floor. Um, I know. I think you had a carpet. So I mean, we had there was a, there was a rug. There's probably a rug and a, a pillow and a sleeping bag. Maybe. What was the power structure such, such that it was automatically your bed and his rug slash carpet at the end of it? I think I was meant to be there first, so it was more of a kind of if you come in late, <laughs> that organization starts, goes into hiatus, comes back, and soon after that you arrive at the idea for Patter? Yeah, well that the Telco the Telco startup dissolved. Um they couldn't they couldn't quite get it together and make it work, but there were a lot of good lessons. I mean, for us it was, you know, being in San Francisco, pitching to VCs, getting an understanding about how that actually worked. That that business, you know, dissolved when it's when it's diff, uh, separate ways, um, and then everyone sort of came back together. I think about twelve months after, you know, not talking to each other for a while, um, and then we, um, it was another classic startup. Uh, we were basically in a space that we weren't paying for with a bunch of other startups. There was definitely a table tennis table there and a bit of that um, a keg. Th- and, a, and a keg that you probably slept under a couple of times the uh, table no time. i never slept in that office yeah. <laughs> i never i never slept in that office even after a christmas party never in that office um and i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure it involved a couple of beers um an october long weekend where we didn't have much to do and then that was the beginning of the company yeah so patter sounds quite different to the projects you'd been working on up until then yeah. Where did the idea for this quite different concept come from? Can you remember where that germinated? I think if you like if you go back to the very beginning, what we were building back then was very different to what we were doing now, but I think for us the core vision and what we were trying to achieve hasn't changed. We have always looked for big problems. Um, you look at what we're doing. You look at the global customer base um, and what we're trying to achieve now. It's a it's a big problem. And back at the beginning, then we were essentially looking for problems that we could solve with software. Um, and that's that's where we started. If this is a was it a fairly novel concept? What you were pitching the idea of pattern to people was it a challenging sell in that there weren't other people already providing this, and you were saying we could do it better? Was it a Bit of a radical idea for people. I think um, one of the interesting processes we've gone through is realizing like what a nascent market we're operating in. The idea of kind of curation and moderation to, from a brand's perspective is a relatively novel one. Mm. Um, but you already have this in terms of your existing digital properties like your website and email and things like that. But when it comes to social channels, people say, well, you know, isn't this the job of the social channel? There's a really good book by a guy called James C. Scott. Called James C. C. Scott, Scott called Seeing Like a State. Seeing like a state. Tell me about that. Which is the idea that basically the way that the state operates operates on a very, very different level. So the idea of like classifying individuals with 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 you know numbers, social security systems, taxation, organization from the history of the doomsday book onwards um, was about organizing and classifying data in a way that meant the operation of the state could function. We think of the same problem here. What you may or may not like on social media is very different from what's legally required by platforms or even kind of societally required by platforms to regulate. So people say, say for example, you're a, um, your fashion brand is quite popular. You may have a lot of comments on your social media saying, you know, this is fraudulent or people offering links to counterfeit versions of your products. Mm-hmm. If you're a platform, that's very different from your day-to-day operations, which are to remove, you know, child abuse content, very, very virulent racism or homophobia, terrorist acts, videos of like quite gruesome detail. For that then to say, well, hold on, this platform's responsibility is to protect my brand on their platform is kind of having your cake and eating it too. Using these platforms to, you know, promote your influence, to kind of build a base, 
And then saying, oh, but if these people are saying, you know, that my brand is particularly bad, I need to put my hand up and say, this is the brand, this is, you know, the platform's problem. We think that it's a bit more nuanced than that. And we think the application of conversational AI in this context allows us to build a really, really interesting way of dealing with these problems, particularly as they kind of ebb and flow. Okay. So you've got this concept. You, you, you want to introduce pattern to organizations. It, it, it's going to help them moderate these spaces, which are crucial to them that they might not realize yet. Can you remember your first sale the first time you got this across the line seven convince someone to come on board yeah absolutely um it's you know early days early days it's a it's a it's a bit of a challenge and it's a bit of a challenge because people didn't know that this was essentially possible it, it's not a it's not a tool that people know that they exist you know you want to go somewhere you want to go somewhere you know you're going to catch you know a bus or a train it's a, it's a concept that's well known to people from a brand perspective to be able to curate the content and and control um to a certain degree what's happening to build a healthy community it's a real challenge Billion Dollar Napkin is brought to you by Amazon Web Services. For over 15 years, AWS has helped more startups launch, build, and succeed than any other cloud provider. If today's episode inspired you, with AWS Activate, you can access free tools and resources to help you get started. Get up to $100,000 in AWS credits and start building with easy-to-use templates that allow you to launch your business idea in minutes. For more information, visit aws.amazon.com slash activate aws prove what's possible take us back to your first sale uh first sale at the very beginning uh that's an interesting one so if we go back to the the very very beginning of it uh there was she wasn't a company so we um sorry at the time you made your first sale technically when we made the first sale there wasn't actually a company so we had we had the idea, we'd come up with the name, we'd pulled together the brand, we were out there, we pitched it, we pitched it and someone went, yep, that's great, we will buy that. And we're like, okay, we better incorporate it. We better incorporate a company to be able to actually send our first invoice. Yeah, little things like invoicing and actually mm, getting yeah, yeah, some yeah. money for the work yeah, you were yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So does absolutely. that capture just the, the, the excitement of that startup world? Yeah. And yeah, and it's it's that uh, that excitement of you know you have an idea you have an idea and you go to market and you know someone says yes and every time someone says yes there's that little burst of excitement of yep yeah, okay we're onto something here there's something interesting behind what we're actually building and what we're doing we're talking a startup journey here that really challenged the two of you at times what was the furthest you were pushed how tough did it get at some stage Seb it, it hasn't been a straight linear climb for you guys has it there's there's been some quite challenging times on the way we'll get to where patter is now soon and it seems to be going quite well but not a straight line from that first sale of an unincorporated couple of dudes to here it hasn't been no it's been um well every, as, as we you know as everyone knows every journey has ups and downs and it's been definitely uh there's definitely been some some dark nights of the soul throughout the building process there's also been some of the the best things that we've we've done some of the incredible people that we've worked with what was the furthest you were pushed how tough did it get at some stage seb Look, I think that we had that tenacity to to always push and to always keep going. I think there was one point there where uh, we may not have eaten for 24 hours or we forgot to eat for 24 hours or we'd <laughs> run out of sleep, uh, running out of sleep, running on fumes, uh, didn't leave a hotel for 10 days straight yep. while we were rolling out some software. Didn't leave a hotel. So seriously, not leaving a hotel room. 10 days straight on a software build legitimately didn't leave didn't leave the hotel so we 
and I think it was a phone call. I think I, yeah. I think I received a phone call. I was taking the phone call and I answered the phone call and to answer it, I actually went outside and then hung up the phone and went, when's the last time I stood outside and left and left the hotel? I think it was, it was a 10 day, 10 day stint nonstop. And we just, we were just in the zone. We were just in the zone. Sometimes when it gets financially tough, you have to show leadership. I've read that there were times where you guys did not take salary from the organization because things were financially pretty tight. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think during kind of the the first chunk and the first tranche of COVID, Seb and I definitely pared back everything we were doing um, and just to make sure that everyone else was taken care of. And I think that's one of the the core values of leadership and, and kind of building a culture and organization is, you know, leaders eat last. So looking back now at some of the mistakes you made or some of the areas where you weren't prepared, where, where were some of the areas where you know, circumstances exposed you as, oh, we did that wrong or we should have thought a little bit more. <laughs> the way, from the way you're laughing, I'm assuming it hasn't only been one. But what are some, what are some of the lessons learned on the way, Seb? Uh, I don't think Dan and I were ever afraid to put ourselves in front of customers and, and uh, distance ourselves from it. We were very happy to be there front and centre with the customer using the technology and being there. Uh, but that has led to some interesting situations where, you know, a customer is rolling out our software and I've been standing on stage and uh, I've launched it and it's crashed um, mm -hmm. in front of an audience of people. And Dan's frantically in another room, you know, on the computer. Trying, pushing an update. Pushing, <laughs> pushing an update. Just Have trying you to fix turned it. it off and turned it on again? Yeah. Hit it with a spanner, yeah, all, password. All of that sort of stuff. So, you know, those early days and that sort of pressure, you know. Um, it didn't crash the second time. It didn't. No, no, it didn't. It didn't. It creates a lot of uh, a lot of tension but between founders in situations like that. There's a lot of pressure. I mean, it's interesting that we both want the same thing. We were both after the same outcome and the same goal, but it creates that tension and pressure where, you know, we're relying on each other, but we're both in a very stressful, high-pressure situation. I spend more time with Seb than I do with my wife. And so, like, that's that's honestly a real thing. Yeah. For for things that we're, we're we're both leaders, we're both running an organization. A lot of it has been learning how to kind of work really effectively with one another. We've we've had our spats, like we've shouted at each other, we've yelled at each other. Those kind of things definitely happen. But I think one of the things is kind of as as you build this kind of close relationship, learning to harness one another's strengths. Like, I will always bounce ideas off Seb, even if I think they're completely stupid stuff that I would never raise with with the rest of the team, because I know that it's an environment where I can say, because you know what, sometimes one of those stupid ideas might actually be a really, really good idea disguised as a stupid idea. I think I'm a little bit more creative. Um, I'm definitely more creative when um, I, you know, bringing solutions together. And Dan is like incredible at sort of finding how to actually solve something, solve something and technically make it happen. So, and I think that that's where, you know, we found this sort of harmony working together where um, as soon as, as Dan said, you figure out your strengths and your weaknesses um, and you figure out how to work together. And then what we've been able to do really well is uh, also bring people around us, right? So hire incredible people, empower them to do an amazing job. And that allows Dan and I to, um, to work really closely together on the things that we know we're really good at. And then the stuff that, you know, is not really, you know, sort of our core competency. Um, we've got a team around us who do an amazing job as well. One of the rules that we have is we want to hire people that scare us. <laughs> You want to hire people that scare you. What yeah. do you mean? People that are so frighteningly competent that we're completely happy that they'll be able to do the job. <laughs> what is something that used to be part of Seb's package that really irritated you that's not there anymore and you're happy for that? Oh, I think maybe some of the admin stuff. 
I think definitely we've had ups and downs on admins. I think one of the things that, that we kind of have is we, not, not turfism necessarily, but stuff you kind of get kind of confident in doing or kind of familiar in doing. And, and one of the problems we have with, one of the problems any organization has as it grows is dividing these responsibilities up, documenting something, doing something like that. I know there was there was a, a brouhaha about invoicing a couple of months ago and then that's turned into an automated process. So yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. good to, we, yeah. we like using software to solve problems. Yeah. Dan, not allowed to multitask in meetings no. anymore. <laughs> We look at some of the organizations you've worked with, Twitter in Singapore, the 2020 Democrats campaign in the United States elections, the yep. Knicks, the Warriors, Rangers, Fortnite. The DNC thing, as I said, it was, it was a real kind of moment in history and it's going to be interesting kind of being, you know, talking about that to my kids. But I think one of the definitely, not hardest, but definitely most intensive things was kind of in the lead up to the, the Biden inauguration. I think I stayed awake and was online for 48 hours straight. I think I only got up to basically do toilet breaks just to make sure that everything went perfectly smoothly. And I think I remember at the end of it, kind of, you know, he'd been inaugurated, everything had gone pretty smoothly. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to bed. I go and, and lay my head down. And I think I got like maybe 30 minutes of sleep until my daughter started screaming. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, family waits for no man as well. When you move to different regions... There's all sorts of different laws. There's all sorts of regulations of online content. There's legalities and like. Compliance is very important. Does the auto compliance that AWS offer make rolling out, scaling and going international easier? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there are conversations that we're having, you know, this week uh, with organizations that we're selling to uh, in Europe and being on top of AWS uh, gives us the confidence in insurance from that compliance perspective, from GDPR compliance to ISO certification, and then AWS backing that. It means that we can have the confidence to have the conversation with customers in a different region. And they have then the confidence knowing that we're an AWS partner and an understanding about everything that sits behind that and comes with that. When you're working with governments or with organizations in you know, elections that are receiving worldwide attention, security must also be top of the agenda yeah security is is kind of our lodestar like like obviously given the brands that we work with and given the you know the the, the risks and the kind of the, the management of that risk there one of the benefits of working with aws is how seriously they take security and working on top of aws means that we know that security is guaranteed for the systems that we build what other support has aws given that's been helpful in the patter experience um, working with their partnership program has been fantastic. Tell us about the of, partnership program. So we're, we're an AWS partner um, and the kind of the access that AWS has given us has been incredible. We're able to basically talk to them about technical things, do technical reviews. They've opened so many doors for us in terms of, you know, being able to, to solve security problems or, or look at, you know, newer technologies or even talk to potential customers. So we have a potential large customer come through the door because we're backed by AWS and because we're partnered with AWS, it's a lot easier to get to a yes. Let's let's look forward twelve months from now. If things go fantastically for Pata, where do you see the organisation? Well, I think so. One of the things that we're pushing at the moment is, and, and people are listening to understand this is a bottom-up strategy. So we have traditionally been quite white glove, go to kind of larger enterprises, go through enterprise sales cycle. We're moving now to make a lot of our tooling available on mass and make that kind of available in a more democratic way. And so our goal, kind of over the next twelve months, is to really kind of broaden the space and help people think about how they're managing and organizing their online communities and how that brings benefits to their brands. Seb, what do you see for the next 12 months if it goes fantastically for Powder? Uh, I'd love to see us grow our customer base globally. Uh, you know, we were already in Europe, North America and APAC um, and just to see us level that up again. But as Dan said, there's a huge opportunity there to actually take what was traditionally and typically enterprise and business tools and bring that down to, you know, influencers, creators and individuals and allow them to sort of uh, have online communities that are healthy and safe uh, as well. 
It's been an amazing few years so far, and it sounds like a really interesting time for this Australian startup. Thank you so much, Seb and Dan, for joining me on Billion Dollar Napkin. Thank you for having us. Billion Dollar Napkin is brought to you by Amazon Web Services and hosted by me, Adam Spencer. Produced by the good people at Podshape, we were filmed on location at the Hollywood Hotel in Sydney.